This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In every industry, there are certain leaders who demand attention. Simply put, when they speak, the industry listens, even when their views are somewhat unconventional. In the securities enforcement space, Russ Ryan is one of those voices, and we're fortunate to have him with us today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Happy New Year. And to you as well. And I didn't want to didn't want to kick this off too early, but happy birthday, Kurt. You hit a birthday milestone oh, since our no, last recording. Do that? Yeah. I won't say what decade, but uh, there's there's a hill involved. I'll put it yeah. that way. So happy birthday, buddy. I think I'm over it. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> as I said up top, we are very fortunate to have with us today our friend Russ Ryan. Um, Russ is a partner at King & Spalding, where he is in the special matters and government investigations practice. Russ has been practicing in this space for about 25 years, and he previously served as an assistant director in the SEC's Division of Enforcement and as the Deputy Chief of Enforcement at FINRA. And I know Russ is listening in the background. I didn't tell him I was going to say this, but since I sort of set him up as uh, something like a titan of industry, I do think we should note that he is a very highly decorated practitioner. He is uh, a recipient of the esteemed SEC Chairman's Award for Excellence. He was named to the inaugural Enforcement 40 list, and he is a past recipient of the Burton Award, which recognizes outstanding legal writing. It should come as no surprise then that Russ is in fact a prolific writer. He currently pens the monthly On Second Thought newsletter on LinkedIn, more on that later, and he has written many op-ed pieces for the Wall Street Journal. Russ, we are really glad to have you with us. Welcome to Insecurities. Thanks, Kurt and Chris. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I think the nicest things we're going to say are behind us. We may push back a little bit as we get through <laughs> as we get through some of these topics. But first, we want to hear a little bit about you. You've had a remarkable career in government and now uh, with one of the premier government investigations and enforcement practices. So just tell us a little bit about your path. Sure. I grew up in New York on Long Island. I went to Boston College undergraduate, uh, St. John's Law School. My first job out of law school was as a judicial law clerk for a federal judge in the Eastern District of New York. I then became a litigation associate at a major New York firm, uh, Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher. I was in their D.C. office. I joined the staff, as you mentioned earlier, of the SEC Division of Enforcement in 1994. I was there for about 10 years was promoted to what was then called a branch chief, and then later as an assistant director. And then uh, I finally left the commission in 2004 to join my current firm, King & Spaulding. And I expected to sort of finish out my career there, but uh, around 2014, 
one of our other mutual friends, Brad Bennett, who was the head of enforcement at FINRA, uh, invited me to uh, join the FINRA Department of Enforcement as a senior vice president and deputy chief who would uh, oversee the enforcement staff in Rockville, Maryland. And I kind of that was kind of an offer I could refuse. So I did that for several years and then returned to, to my firm in the fall of 2018. And I've been there ever since and uh, happy to be back at uh, King and Spaulding. It's rare that we uh, that we get the chance to talk to somebody who has had that that mix of um, private practice and government practice uh, at the SEC and at Finra at very high levels. So you know, as I said, we are uh, we're really happy to have you on the show and benefit from the perspective you will have earned in those various roles, Chris. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, that Russ has been writing in recent months? Russ, your career can sound, you know, kind of run of the mill or, or a little bit kind of, you know, that government and, and private practice, uh, you know, straddling those positions. But, you know, we're glad to have you on really because you illustrate how securities enforcement professionals uh, can share their personality and candor beyond some of those rigid and formal stereotypes we usually apply to them. And and the On Second Thought series of articles is definitely there. Beginning last spring, Russ, you kicked off that series of writings on LinkedIn, which you call, quote, an endeavor to provide short doses of unconventional thinking about securities enforcement on a more regular monthly schedule, end quote. And as our listeners know, Kurt and I are big securities wonks, uh, but we also love joking about about how serious the topics and the people behind those topics can get. And and Russ, it appears you're cut from the same cloth as us uh, regarding your use of capitalization to imply double meaning in the title of your your writings on second thought. The first three letters of the word second – are capitalized. The On Second Thought series has been a resounding success uh, after your publication of what's been nine articles now, which I know are must-reads for Kurt and me, as well as other guests of Insecurities. In fact, we referenced an article of yours on episode 25 in our discussion with Sandra Hanna regarding the 2020 enforcement report and the SEC's focus on 102E matters, which we'll discuss in a bit. But you'll be happy to hear that Sandra said, and I quote, you should always listen to Russ Ryan because he's typically right. That reputation has spread and manifested in a following of more than 7,500 subscribers to On Second Thought, which we encourage the listeners of Insecurities to join up and subscribe as well. Russ, talk to us a bit about the series. What got you started with those writings and how you viewed the response from the industry? Well, I've always been a prolific writer and I really enjoy writing and especially finding topics and perspectives that in some cases, literally nobody else seems to have ever thought about, much less written about. And I've had articles published over the years in any number of places, um, most prominently, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal. But it, it's really hard to get published in places like that. I got on a pretty good streak there before I went to FINRA. But you also, there's a lot of waiting time involved to see if they're interested If they're not interested, then you start from square one with another publication. And a lot of the things I I write about, I feel like they're time sensitive. And so about a year ago, I started thinking, you know, I I, I saw other people publishing on LinkedIn. At the time, I wasn't a really big believer that that was um, a viable platform for this type of thing. But I thought I'd give it a shot. And the the LinkedIn people were good enough to set me up with this sort of newsletter 
format. And every month I try to come up with a topic that I think is timely, that that's interesting, and that really is a new, either a new perspective on an old topic or a completely new topic that I think people are just not not really focused on. And as you said, I, I've slowly grown the subscribership up to now over 7,500, which is nice. My goal would be to get it at least to, you know, 20, 25,000 by the end of the year, but uh, we'll see how it goes. So far, I've been pretty encouraged by the feedback and uh, I intend to keep it up. It's, it's not easy to crank out an article on a monthly basis like this, but you know, so far I've been able to do it um, and it's become sort of part of my routine. So hopefully I'll keep it going. Yeah, as, as fellow content providers, Russ, we understand <laughs> how that can sometimes be a <laughs> I admire a you guys constraint. too. I mean, you guys are now at it, what is it, about a year now, right? Yeah, just Almost a year. Exactly. Congratulations. Yeah. It's really right. fantastic that you've been able to do this. Well, thanks. And one of the things, Russ, I love about your your articles is is kind of the comment section. The folks writing in in response are other, you know, kind of titans in the securities industry. So it's almost a who's who of of who's reading what uh, on second thought has has brought up this month and and seeing some great discussion there. Yeah, we I, we fully appreciate your uh, drive to try to sort of grow your followers uh, as we're obviously doing the same. And I mean, 25,000 would be an amazing feat. You know, I also, I, I appreciate the struggle you have sometimes just getting things, in, you know, in print in a timely fashion. Uh, I, I haven't been nearly as prolific a writer in my career as you have been, um, but I do try to write frequently. And and I completely understand when something happens, you want to be, you know, one of the first people to to go to you know the market with with your idea and sort of present yourself as a thought leader. And I think you've used LinkedIn wonderfully to make sure that you have an outlet for those thoughts when you need to get them out in a, in a timely way. And maybe not to the exclusion of other publications, but um, I think it's great. It's one of the things that we talk about with a lot of our guests is how they're using new uh, new media to be thought leaders or you know to promote their practice or whatever they want to do. So well well done on that. So Russ, we do want to pivot and talk to you a little bit about some of the content or some of the specific articles that you've posted on on LinkedIn because you know as we've said they're they're very good and they're very interesting. Um, and let's go all the way back to May 2019. I think in your very first article in the On Second Thought series, you focused on what's actually one of my favorite topics, and it's the remarkable frequency with which the SEC has appeared before the Supreme Court in recent years, and and it really has been a crazy run. We've seen, going back to 2017, uh, the Kokesh case in which the Supreme Court ruled that disgorgement is a penalty. In 2018, there was the digital realty case, which said whistleblowers must go to the SEC in order to qualify for Dodd-Frank whistleblower protections. Also in 2018, there was uh, Lucia versus the SEC, in which the court ruled that uh, administrative law judges are officers of the United States subject to the appointments clause. In 2019, we saw the Lorenzo case, which I like to call the copy and paste fraud case, which had to do with when a person makes a statement for purposes of the securities laws. And then just in 2020, we saw the Lou versus SEC case, um, which set out, maybe not clearly, but set out the statute of limitations applicable 
to uh, claims for disgorgement in SEC enforcement actions brought in federal district court. We talked about a lot about that one last year. We talked about it with Matt Stock in the context of how that could implicate the whistleblower program. We talked about it with Sandra Hanna um, when looking back on the enforcement year for fiscal year 20. So we, we've been talking about these things. I, I really enjoyed reading your article, Russ, where you, you sort of asked up top, you know, why is it that the SEC keeps finding itself, uh, quote, playing defense in the Supreme Court? And, it, you know, later in the article, you described a lot of these cases as self-inflicted wounds. So, you know, tell us what, what's been going on here, because it is remarkable. Yeah, it was, a, you know, over the past couple of years, I kept finding myself thinking, you know, I don't remember seeing all that many Supreme Court decisions involving SEC enforcement for the vast majority of my career. And I literally couldn't remember the last time the SEC had lost a case in the Supreme Court involving enforcement. And now, you know, just in the last few years, it just seems like almost every year there's a case where the SEC is sort of playing defense in the, in the Supreme Court. So last year, or, you know, I guess it was last April or so, I decided, well, why don't I kind of do some research and test whether my memory is right? right. And I was kind of shocked to discover that there's, there were only before, you didn't mention the Gabelli case in 2013, which is where I start the clock in terms of sort of the, the current era. But before Gabelli, There'd only been two SEC enforcement cases that went to the Supreme Court since I graduated law school. And I'm not going to say when that was, but <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, and the, both of those cases, by the way, are cases that the SEC requested Supreme Court review mm -hmm. because they'd lost in the lower courts and the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor of them. So you know, it's 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 really extraordinary that I mean, when you think about it from I think it was 1985, the SEC versus Lowe case mm -hmm. uh, all the way up through Gabelli. That's like over 25 years, uh, you know, basically 1985 to uh, 2013. So the Supreme Court didn't accept certiorari in a single case that the SEC had won in the lower courts. I mean, the the commission was essentially bulletproof once you got through the Court of Appeals. Um, and, and I think that was in large part because it had earned a reputation for being, you know, a sensible, uh, reasonable regulator. But I think what happened, you know, five, 10 years ago was that the agency just started getting more and more aggressive and in some cases sort of persisting in legal positions that were being undermined by case law in other areas or that just when you really thought about it was just plain unreasonable. For example, I, I would use the Kokesh case where the commission for decades was insisting that it had literally no statute of limitations if it, when, it, when it was seeking disgorgement. I mean, that's just, you, you keep pushing positions like that and eventually you're gonna hit resistance. And I think that's sort of what happened over the past now eight or nine years is that people are pushing back because the SEC has taken just 
overly aggressive positions and sometimes unreasonable ones. And, you know, eventually the courts are going to say, no, you're, you're wrong on this. And, you know, it's not just that there's all these cases in the Supreme Court, but they, the SEC has lost most of them. Um, and in many cases, they've lost um, unanimously. That sort of spurred the article. And um, hopefully we'll see, you know, a little more reasonable approach in the, in the future. And maybe the SEC won't find itself before the Supreme Court as much as it has been over the last seven or eight years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's un, it's undeniable that we are seeing more challenges to, you know, the way the SEC's enforcement division does its business. I think part of your theory is that they, they're just being more aggressive and, you know, pushing the envelope, I think is a phrase that you use. You know, I guess I sort of see a, a confluence of factors that that may be causing this too. I mean, one is there, there's just, there are so many more SEC enforcement actions than there were 15 years ago or, you know, 30 years ago, right? So, there are potentially more cases where someone might want to seek review for something the SEC did. And I think when you combine that with some, you know, noteworthy changes in the federal judiciary, it's worth it for some of these um, defendants to to maybe roll the dice and, and take it all the way up. I think that they sense that there may be ears on the court that will that will hear their calls to sort of limit the SEC's expansive view of its mandate. And so the, and so they challenge it. I mean, you know, what I would note in these several cases we've seen in the last several years, like we're not seeing big Wall Street firms challenging the SEC in those in those cases, right? We know that they settle early. These are yeah. these are usually small companies or individuals that think they might find a sympathetic ear. Um, so I, I don't know, Russ. For me, it's a it's a confluence of things. Yeah, I think you're right on that. One other thing I'd mention, I think, is just that the SEC has historically been among the leading sort of law enforcement type administrative agencies, and I think. It's, I don't know, it's maybe just my perception that the Supreme Court seems to be very interested in sort of re-examining the, uh, the scope of the administrative state. When you're an agency that's sort of in the forefront of taking sort of uh, aggressive action, I think you necessarily find yourself more often in, in, in the crosshairs of people that are skeptical of the administrative state. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. I mean, we've been we've been talking for Chris probably as long as we've been doing this podcast about whether or not we're going to see a a real and robust challenge to Chevron, which would be really the thing that would strike at the heart of the administrative state. We haven't really seen it yet. We see um, some cases, including some of these, that sort of are you know around the edges, chipping away at it, perhaps, or at least suggesting that um, there there is some reluctance to continue to give the deference that we have given to these agencies in the past. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, Russ. I think we could talk about um, uh, you know litigating before the Supreme Court for an entire episode. But but Chris, I think there were a couple um, particular issues flagged in some of those uh, cases that you wanted to bring up. As a forensic accountant, one of the areas of study I've focused on over the past few years is disgorgement or that recovery of, quote, ill-gotten gains. Uh, an illegal precedent game of Pong being played out, which, Kurt, you profiled well in discussing with Russ about the Supreme Court's 
uh, rulings on those. It appears the limits, rules, and understanding of what is and isn't an appropriate source of disgorgement by the SEC is an ongoing development. And, and Russ, your most recent article at On Second Thought, titled, quote, How the SEC Became the Investor's Collection Agent, end quote, focuses on the somewhat subtle manner in which a recent legislative act impacts SEC's disgorgement. In the article, you, quote, discuss an ill-considered provision tucked deep within the must-pass 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, which, after a New Year's Day vote to override a presidential veto, has now cemented the SEC's ability to obtain disgorgement of illicit gains, in parentheses, undefined, and given the SEC up to 10 interminable years to investigate its cases, end quote. Talk to us a bit about the NDAA, the basis for your thoughts, and and how you think the disgorgement issues at hand are impacted by that. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of offended by the way this legislation came to being, not just on the substance of the legislation, but on the process. But I think uh, to put it all in context, I'd go back to the Kokesh decision that we've mentioned a couple of times already, the one in 2017 where the Supreme Court basically said that disgorgement claims by the SEC, just like when they ask for penalties, are subject to the five-year time limit that's based in, in statute. After Kokesh, uh, there were not just at the SEC, but people in Congress who thought that that was a mistake, that um, five years wasn't enough time, and legislation started to circulate. In late 2019, the House actually passed a bill um, that would have extended the SEC's statute of limitation to 14 years for disgorgement. And to my shock at the time, it got overwhelming bipartisan support in the House including you know, most, if not all, Democrats and even a majority of Republicans. So that, that's when it sort of came to my attention. But then it went to the Senate and basically didn't really go anywhere. Um, there was a companion bill in the Senate. I think it was Senators Warner and Kennedy. And I think that might have had the 10-year statute of limitations. But it just really never moved anywhere in the Senate. So I think I and a lot of other people just thought it was sort of dead in the water. It's not um, the only bill that suffered that fate in the Senate over the correct. last. Correct, and we may get to we may get to one or more of the others later. Uh, but you're right. But all of a sudden, this bill that had gone basically nowhere in the Senate was now a lot of it, including this 10 year statute of limitations for some disgorgement claims was somehow magically in this gargantuan defense spending bill at the, the 11th hour of the year and, and, and the, the outgoing Congress. And I, I got to admit, I, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out exactly how it got in there or who put it in there. And I can't find anything in the public record other than it's not in one version. And then a few days later, it is in the version that then gets voted on and passed. In fairness, I should say that there were House hearings in 2019 on the bill before it was passed in the House. But the one thing that nobody seems to have even thought about, it's just taken on faith and as a truistic premise 
that it's a good thing for the SEC to be trying to collect investor losses through its enforcement program. And viscerally, that sounds good. It feels good. And I'm not even really sure I'm against that. But as far as I can tell, nobody's ever really made the case that this is a good way to spend limited SEC resources. That wasn't the original mission of the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, it's frequently cited as either the most important thing that the SEC does or one of the most important. But nobody ever really explains why that's the case. Having been at the SEC and FINRA, when you start getting to that level of trying to prove every lost nickel and get it back to people, that takes an extraordinary amount of time and resources. And, you know, if the SEC just sort of focused on finding violations, you know, citing them, maybe even getting a, an, appro- you know, an appropriately modest penalty, but then leaving it to the private sector to sort out, you know, who lost money, how much, who should get their money back and things like that. Just think how many more cases the SEC would find and be able to bring to a prompt conclusion and how, how much more quickly those cases might go. Um, but, you know, none of those sort of hidden costs to the feel-good benefits of, yeah, let's get investors' money back. Nobody's ever asked to sort of weigh those costs and benefits and, and really do a serious analysis of whether there's a better way to do this. I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, I'm sure for many, it would seem to fall within the SEC's investor protection mandate, which of course is one of the prongs of the tripart mandate that we hear an awful lot about. But yeah, it it may be that they're not getting the balance right. Um, And and like you, Russ, I've noted that it has been increasingly something the SEC focuses on, particularly the enforcement division over the past several years. You know, uh, certainly uh, in Andrew Serezny's time, we heard a lot about the the penalties and the number of cases, and that has transitioned between uh, co-directors of Aiken and Pekin to be more of a conversation about how much money did the SEC obtain in return to harmed investors. Look, on some level, uh, it makes sense to me that the SEC would be there as a, a voice or a force for harmed investors that can't necessarily speak up for themselves or in, in some cases don't even know they've been harmed. You know, We've seen a, a lot of that in the mutual fund fees cases uh, where I, I suspect there are a lot of investors out there getting checks that didn't even know to look for it. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. I, on the other side, I think if and I've spent almost as much time arguing with the SEC about remediation methodologies as I have the merits of cases over the last 18 months or so. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I feel the pain there too. But I just wonder what would happen if if the SEC Enforcement Division's sole role became, you know, slapping wrists and, and folks were allowed to um, potentially keep their ill-gotten gains. I think that changes the program. One other thing, Kurt, is just that, um, you know, disgorgement in the in the really bad cases where there's really horrible fraud and blood, what we call blood on the floor and investor losses like that, intentional stealing of money, those cases disproportionately, the SEC cannot collect the money anyway. So what you get in these big sort of aggregate disgorgement numbers is frequently settling companies, you know, companies that settled and paid big disgorgement amounts account for the vast majority of the funds that are actually returned 
to investors. And in those cases, they tend to be sometimes not even enter based cases. Um, but, you know, there's sort of a disconnect between this notion that um, the Ponzi schemers are getting to keep their money and they get to keep their money if the SEC didn't do disgorgement. But the reality is the SEC's in most of those cases isn't collecting a lot anyway. A note on that, though, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. In, in a lot of these non-Center cases where we're seeing big companies agree to some amount of disgorgement to remediate harmed investors, um, maybe the provision in the NDAA is a win for them because <laughs> the non-fraud cases are, are a five-year statute of limitations, which is now on the books, and we don't ever have to worry about it again. So I don't, I don't know. Am I, am I looking through rose-colored glasses here? <laughs> oh, just remember, they. Yeah, I've written about these too, but you know, there's totally agreements. You know, yeah, yeah. The SEC will always be. Uh, able to secure tolling agreements in those types of cases because companies want to look cooperative and uh, for other reasons usually do not resist a, uh, a request for a tolling agreement. A couple other points of clarification just for my education. When, if ever, has there been a similar um, you know, legislative or regulatory uh, clause included in the National Defense Authorization Act that has impacted the operations of the SEC? As far as I know, the SEC has been, you know, separate bills that um, that were sort of focused specifically on this, and it was done transparently and so forth. But um, you know, but there's a lot of other things that buried in the defense spending bill this year, and I'm sure every other year. I mean, there's all this uh, AML type uh, legislation, so I, I don't think it's unusual, for better or worse. I don't think it's unusual for people to tuck things in at the last minute, but I can't remember something this important involving the, the SEC being essentially buried at the last minute in a bill like yeah. this. I, I think it, it may be the first time that it's been successful. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, remember, I remember last year th there was a, an effort in, in the House, um, and I think this was through uh, Maxine Waters' office, to include in the spending bill uh, or the, you know, the budget for the SEC a provision that said, you, know, you can have your budget, but you can't spend any of it on implementing, enforcing, or education relating to regulation best interests. Chris, there's my reg bi oh, yeah, reference yeah. for this episode, right? So and, far and in, we almost got there. <laughs> that got through the House version of the bill, but it was struck from the from the bill that was ultimately passed out of the Senate. Um, so they do try to do this stuff sometimes. But Russ, you're right. I don't remember. I don't remember it working before. <laughs> While we've got you thinking about issues that may be on the horizon. Uh, we'd like to get your thoughts on what things we might want to be focusing on uh, this year, or let's say in the next couple of years. Um, you know, as you'll know, of course, we are we will soon be entering into a new administration. We will have a new chairperson at the SEC. We will have a new uh, director or potentially co-directors uh, of enforcement. I would imagine um, there will be some change. Uh, so, w what do you think, Russ? What what's on the horizon? Keep in mind that the SEC in general and the enforcement division in particular is overwhelmingly career staff rather than political appointees. So 
there's historically been a lot of continuity and consistency from one administration to the next. And, you know, I think you can take some comfort in that. But yeah, a new chair and a new um, director of enforcement can make a difference. Sort of seen that over the last two administrations. And and let me just say, like, you know, I haven't been shy, as you've noticed, um, about sort of challenging the SEC enforcement policy. I think you probably overstate the degree to which I'm quote unquote critical. I think I'd prefer to say it as sort of, you know, thought provoking and um, the the, uh, the loyal opposition, so to speak. But I, I do want to say that, you know, I haven't agreed with everything that uh, Stephanie Avakian and Steve Pekin did, but by and large, and, and under Chairman Clayton, um, but by and large, I really do applaud the way um, they've steered the enforcement program over the past several years. And I wrote about this before I started the On Second Thought series on LinkedIn. I wrote a couple of just sort of stray articles on LinkedIn. And the first one I did, which was about two years ago, I sort of did praise Stephanie and Steve for the way they were sort of bringing the enforcement program back to basics, you know, and, you know, my biggest, I guess, concern and my, I guess I would hope that we don't sort of just automatically revert back to sort of the things we saw five or 10 years ago, like broken windows and forced admissions of wrongdoing, if you want to settle a case bypassing the courts by sort of stuffing important cases into the administrative process, especially when they're contested. You know, it started to look like the SEC was on the brink of becoming essentially a criminal prosecution office or a quasi-criminal prosecution office, not connected to the DOJ and operating under sort of this cloak of being just an ordinary civil regulator. And I I really thought that was starting to get problematic and and a little bit dangerous. And I'm just really hoping that whoever takes over at the SEC, both in the chair position and head of enforcement, that they don't just sort of reflexively go back to to that without at least putting a lot lot of thought into it. But in terms of subject areas, I think... um, you're going to see probably a, a bigger focus than we've seen in the past few years on the, the big banks and private funds. Um, I think you'll see an even greater focus on insider trading. There's legislation that passed comfortably in the House a year or so ago that would have essentially codified insider trading law and at the edges made it easier for the SEC and criminal prosecutors to prosecute those cases. Uh, especially if that legislation gets revived and passed, which I think is far more likely now than I would have thought a year or two ago. You know, I think the SEC is going to really crack down in that area. Chris will love this, but Reg BI, Reg BI exams are likely to turn into enforcement actions, I think, in the near future. And I think just overall, uh, you're probably just going to see a more aggressive mindset probably a push to raise the the bar in terms of uh, civil penalties and basically get back to disgorgement, especially with 
the new legislation that just passed. Um, I think that will embolden the SEC to go back to um, maybe even more aggressive disgorgement demands. So um, those are just a couple of thoughts I had on, you know, what to expect. Yeah, Russ, the insider trading topic, you know, Kurt, you and I talked about this all the way back on episode four, uh, almost a year ago, we did a a profile of that uh, house bill uh, that would have prescribed a a more defined focus and and definition for what insider trading is. And we also profiled the uh, report of the Barara Task Force on Insider Trading. Uh, So if listeners are interested in going back to episode four, you can check that out. Now, Russ, you know, you talked about how insider trading would be a focus and and Preet Bharara has actually been listed uh, as as one of the the short names for, you know, potentially being nominated as the SEC chairman. So I can imagine a a world in which insider trading becomes the focus, knowing his background as as the attorney in the Southern District of New York focused on that. But uh, I know, uh, you know, that that's kind of a moving target in terms of who will actually be nominated as the SEC chairperson. Yeah. One other thing we met. I think it was Kurt was mentioning Chevron deference earlier, but, you know, I've written about how a lot of SEC insider trading law, current law, um, relies on Chevron deference. And I've written that, you know, if Chevron got overturned, that might put in jeopardy some of the longstanding principles of SEC insider trading enforcement. Um, But if this legislation passes, I think that throws Chevron deference objections out the window because you would actually, for the first time, have a congressional statute that fairly specifically defined what insider trading is and isn't. The SEC would no longer need to rely on deference. So um, that's just an interesting thing that I think we wait and see what happens, but it could be interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I haven't thought about that before. I haven't heard someone write or say that before. So, you know, t- typical of what I would expect expect from you, Russ, just sort of <laughs> breaking it down in, in, new, in new ways. <laughs> I'm pretty sure one of my uh, LinkedIn articles covered that. I can't remember. I know I've written about this, but we'll have to see how it goes. Uh, one other thing I, I want to ask you about before we uh, talk about something a little bit more fun. There was a public statement out of the SEC. It was from the sitting chairman, Alad Roisman, and the other three sitting commissioners um, jointly, uh, which we haven't seen a lot of in, in recent years. Um, but they basically said that in, in 2012, Uh, The SEC, in conjunction with the DOJ, conceived a plan where they would essentially do sting operations to get some bad actors in the securities markets. And specifically, what they were going to do was have some members of the SEC staff get specific training to um, act as undercover sort of fake investors who were going to express interest in investing with or through folks that um, either the SEC or DOJ thought were violating the securities laws, um, potentially uh, committing criminal violations of the securities laws. And what they said is they they tabled it. They never did it. They got authority to move forward, but it didn't happen. And they are seeking public comment on, I, I guess, whether or not this is something the SEC and DOJ should think about doing in future. Russ, I, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I did see that yesterday and found it really interesting. Whenever um, putatively civil regulators start doing things that look and smell and feel like things that criminal investigators and prosecutors do, it makes me very nervous, Um, especially when they're not trained the same way that criminal prosecutors and investigators are trained. They're not answerable to the attorney general 
and they're not held to the same constitutional standards uh, and protections that uh, that apply in the criminal process. But look, I mean, I, viscerally, um, again, I'm open to this notion. I remember when I was on the SEC staff, I would have loved to have been able to do undercover investigations. I think me and some of my friends would occasionally sort of muse about it and say how much how much fun that would be and how effective it might be. So it's something that's certainly worth thinking about. But, um, you know, there would have to be some really strict guidelines on this. It's an interesting idea. I think it is worth thinking about. I'm viscerally nervous about the notion, but I just want to give it some more thought before I really kind of take a, a firm position on it. One of the other items here that I think is is worth it for you know, investigative mindset folks like myself is you've got the SEC coming out now and saying they got the green light, but they they swear they didn't actually go forward with this, quote, undercover program. Isn't that what you would say if you were running an undercover program? <laughs> wow. You're just, you're more, you're more uh, cynical than I am, Chris. I yeah. I've watched yeah. a few too many spy movies, but that's, that's wow. the first place I, my head uh, went. No, I take them at the word. Okay. I can't, probably, imagine, probably the better I can't imagine they'd put a, a public statement out there. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, even, even I wouldn't go there. <laughs> funny. Well, you know, I, I'll keep my eye out for this appearing in uh, the On Second Thought series. And if nothing else, uh, in keeping with the theme here, it's something to keep our eye on in 2021. Russ, we can't let you go without commenting on your your reputation in the securities world. You know, you're you're seen as a an attorney who plays hardball, and uh, many of your colleagues and, and fellow professionals may not know how appropriate that uh, that moniker is for you, uh, based on your longtime passion for the game of baseball. Now, this is real passion, not like a guy like me who loves going to Nats Park for an occasional beer and following the team online. You you're actually out on the field regularly, playing in a fast pitch hardball recreational league in Northern Virginia. And not only have you continued to play fast pitch well into your, shall we say, more experienced decades, but you share this passion with with your son. Uh, apart from the Wall Street Journal op-eds we talked about earlier, uh, you've also been profiled by the journal for your workout routines on and off the diamond. In the June 2018 article entitled, A Father-Son Baseball Bond Stretches to Adulthood, you talk to the journal about the Ponce de Leon League you and your son participate in and you probably encapsulate all of the feelings of getting older when you talk about the competitive spirit of the league saying, quote, in general, people care more about going back to work Monday morning injury free than winning, end quote. <laughs> as, as an elder statesman, Russ, in the securities world, what keeps you playing through all these years? And and what advice would you give to other aging professionals like Kurt regarding their physical health? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh boy. Now, I've, I've, I've always loved baseball. I played it as a kid. Then, you know, some of my kids played, including the son, my oldest son, who now plays with me in the Ponce de Leon League. I would just say, you know, I, and I say this frequently when people ask me about it, is think about those things you enjoyed in your youth. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be sports. But, you know, if you played, you know, played a musical instrument, if you were in the theater program in, in high school, you know, at some point in your adulthood, especially when you have more time, you know, the kids get older and um, you, you find yourself with a little more free time on weekends, you know, try to get back to some of those everyday passions that you had earlier. And it's just it's just invigorating to 
to get back to those things. And, and I, I have to say that I think part of the reason why I'm still at it is that my son became age eligible. You have to be 30 or older to play. And uh, a few years ago, he turned 30 and he was always a baseball player, too. He lives nearby. Um, and so I kind of talked him into playing. And, uh, you know, there's just nothing better than playing something like baseball with, with your yeah, the son that you coached in Little League. And it's just it's just fun and it's it's just really um enjoyable and it's it's rewarding and it sort of makes you tries to fool you into thinking maybe you're still young. Um, That's you know, right. at this point I'm if I'm not the oldest guy on the team, I'm I'm probably one of the one or two oldest and you know, most of the most of the other guys are in their thirties and forties, I'd say. So um, and uh, you, you use the word fast pitch. Um, I put I put quotations around fast. I mean, I was going to say, Russ. Yeah. I mean, you know, every now and then you'll get some guy throwing it in the seventies or or low eighties, but for the most part, that ball's coming in no more than about sixty sixty five. I was going to say, Russ, you're a pitcher, right? You're not just some guy standing in the outfield counting daisies. Uh, and I was going to ask you what what your most recent uh, hit on the radar gun was. So it sounds like we're in, <laughs> we're in the mid-60s for a guy who had to give up uh, baseball at 13 because I couldn't hit a curveball, would still blow well, well by my skills and abilities. But that's an excellent hobby and something to keep you, uh, keep you busy outside of the office and, and outside of the legal books. Some great advice too, Russ, on uh, you know, how to find that, that balance uh, in, in our careers. Well, Russ, we've really enjoyed having you on the show today. I appreciate you being patient with us. I know, I know, we've been a little bit hard on you and maybe yeah. overstated your positions a couple of times. Uh, it, it was all um, hopefully in, in good fun and for the purposes of conversation. Any final thoughts or closing remarks you want to make before we wrap the episode? Yeah, just following up on what you just said. I, I mean, I don't want the perception to be that I'm some kind of harsh critic of the SEC. Sometimes what I write may sound critical. What I'm trying to do is just trigger some some thinking, some critical thinking about things. And, and you know, as a former SEC staffer, I really do have great respect for the agency. Many, if not most of my closest friends are either current or former staffers. And so I, I really sort of want to emphasize that what I'm trying to do is just trigger people to think and, and sort of think about these issues in a way that um, maybe you don't ordinarily do. Yeah, well, we appreciate you sharing those views with us today. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Russ Ryan of King & Spalding and the On Second Thought series on LinkedIn. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, 
Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.